Hello and welcome to Real Estate 2020 Vision, the podcast connecting you with the people and the products shaping the future of the real estate industry globally. My name's Guy Westlake, I'm founder of Lavanda, and today I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome onto the show Faisal Butt, founder and CEO of PyLabs. Now, PyLabs is Europe's first and most active prop tech venture capital firm. Since launching in 2015, they've made over 55 investments globally from pre-seed through to Series A. But it doesn't stop there, because alongside PyLabs, Faisal's also founder of Spire Ventures, which invests in traditional real estate assets. Hailing from America's West Coast, he started out life as a tech entrepreneur, so he has bundles of experience to share with us today. Faisal, we're delighted to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me on the show. Really excited to be sharing some of my story here today. Let's jump straight in. London's your home. It's where you've built up two very successful businesses, yet your entrepreneurial talents and experience spans both sides of the pond. How did you find your way into real estate and where did you discover your love for PropTech? Yeah, absolutely. I've had a a pretty interesting career with quite a variety of different types of experiences. I I think that to get to VC, there isn't any one linear path. But for me, it seems like looking back with the benefit of hindsight, it makes sense when I connect all the dots, but it certainly didn't as I was going through the journey. So if I just kind of rewind back. I went to university in the States. I was in California at UCLA. This was late 90s, early 2000s. And so, you know, the hot sectors were definitely tech um, as we were going through the first dot-com boom. So uh, like a lot of students that were interested or uh, intrigued by the possibilities of tech, I studied computer science alongside my main degree of business economics. And, um, after graduating, I got picked up by one of the one of the recruiters on campus for a tech consulting role. A lot of my friends went into tech startups. I thought I'd you know go for something slightly more conservative at that point in my career, and uh, went for tech consulting. Did that for two years and found out actually it didn't really intellectually excite me. And what I was really interested in was more high growth startups and innovation and really breaking new ground and building building things. So. I caught the entrepreneurial bug quite early. So at 25, I set up my own tech startup. It was, you know, what you would call probably e-commerce 1.0 because in the early 2000s, that, that that was the kind of iteration version of tech that was evolving fast. So what exactly motivated you to do that? Was it because you had friends, your colleagues who were enjoying success in their own startups or from their own startup experiences? Absolutely. Yeah. So I had had friends and fellow, you know, friends from UCLA that had gone in and worked at tech startups. And some of them have, had uh, done well through the stock options that they had earned. And others had gone through the cycle of joining a funded tech startup that eventually went bust in the dot-com boom. So I kind of had seen a variety of different stories, some successful, some not. But um, despite that, uh, just being young and willing to take some risk with my career at 25, I decided I would dive from, you know, make make that jump from corporate into a startup fairly early. I think I then really cut my teeth operationally in building a business and hiring people, doing everything you do, Guy, in your, in your day job of running a startup. And, and I did that for a couple of years. And, um, you know, not everyone's first startup works out. And in, in this instance, I kind of felt like the my ambitions were a bit bigger than what the startup itself was able to deliver. I wasn't getting the scale that I was looking for. So I did what a lot of people do when they're kind of looking for the next big thing, looking for the next chapter of their career. I decided to go and apply for a uh, master's and do an MBA and kind of return to the cocoon of academia to give by myself some time to figure out what's next. 
And, um, you know, I got into some of the, you know, more entrepreneurial schools in the in the US, like MIT, etc. But I was very interested in um, coming over to Europe and um, in particular being based out of London in a, in a global city, because I've always thought quite globally. Um, and that goes back to my background. I've kind of grown up around the world. I I grew up originally in Belgium. My parents are Pakistani, so I've spent some time there. I went to American international schools all of my life. So I've just moved around a lot. And um, while California was great, I, I kind of felt that the, the mindset was sometimes a bit provincial, and whereas London is much of a much more of a global city. I then ended up at Oxford to do an MBA program, and they had a really interesting scholarship program, which is funded by Jeff Skoll, um, the one of the co-founders of eBay, and he was funding entrepreneurs that had um, more of a social bent and wanted to build businesses that were also doing good for the world and the planet. And so he would fund five social entrepreneurs each year. So got into the to Oxford on a full scholarship, and that kind of convinced me to move across to the, to the UK. And uh, and that was 2008-09. So I've really only be, been in the UK for about 12 years. So that was a really exciting year. I'd have to say, like, you know, one of the most intense single years of my life. There's just so much that they put you through and um, every, the types of people you meet from around the world. Uh, a great academic experience, but great networking experience as well. Actually, I, would, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next, but I would sit down and meet with the, the career counselors at Oxford. And I didn't have a very vanilla and straightforward background because I'd done tech consulting and I'd built my own startup. And that doesn't really lead you into strategy consulting at McKinsey, for example, or it doesn't lead you into, you know, going to one of the programs, um, the en- entry level programs at some investment bank. So I was kind of seen as a bit of a wild card, unemployable type of candidate whenever I'd meet the career counselors. And uh, they didn't want to say it, but really the message was you're pretty unemployable. What I then found was perhaps venture capital and investing would, would be a good fit for me because I'd had that operational experience in building startups. And maybe I could apply that in evaluating other startups to invest in. And I happened to get a summer consultancy gig with a family office in Mayfair, who I met through Oxford. So the principal of the family office, um, this guy, James Kahn, was giving a speech at Oxford. And as a student, I just approached him and pitched why um, I could be a valuable consultant over the summer. And we called it consultant, not an intern, because part of the curriculum at Oxford is to deliver a strategy consulting assignment to a client that you have to source and you can't graduate without that. It's actually one of the academic credits. So all the students do it. So anyway, that, that summer went really well. And I then ended up working at the family office, not with any specific mandate or remit. I was more shadowing the principal and moving around um, and uh, attending a lot of meetings and taking notes, which gave me a, a blank slate to come up with a strategy, which was great. And this is 2009 when the world had imploded. Um, so time to be looking at new opportunities. And uh, what I didn't mention earlier is I come from a real estate family. So like I'd kind of grown up hearing about tenants and contractors and leases. So property was quite intuitive. I'd never considered going into it professionally, but I started to kind of pay attention in 2009 to some of the disruptions happening in the real estate sector. And of course, we were in the middle of a global economic crisis that had its roots in real estate mortgages. So to me, it felt like that was a natural place where there's going to be a lot of 
change and evolution and disruption and good good place to start to set out your stall and say I'm looking for new businesses being set up in the sector. Um, so that I kind of um, tested out that thesis and initially I wasn't looking at tech. I was looking at just new businesses being set up in real estate. So I backed a couple of real estate platforms, real estate investment platforms that then went on to do quite well. And then in 2013, I started to get very interested in the intersection of tech and property. And for me, that was natural. Like I had my family roots in property. I was deeply interested in tech, having come out of California and, and, and the startup I had initially built and the tech consulting I had done. So for me, it was very natural to bring those two worlds together. So I started to kind of um, look for businesses that sat at that, that intersection. And around that time in 2013, when I was looking, you had had Zoopla that had recently floated or were about to float. You know, and they had come out of the GFC, right? They, they were a relatively new business. And you had, you had had Airbnb emerge out of the GFC. So there were, there were some starting to be some big and valuable examples of prop tech businesses, although nobody was calling them prop tech at the time. But they were in some way digitalizing real estate. I then um, made a first investment um, into a company called eMove, and oftentimes your first investments don't work out. But I, it was baptism by fire. Like we, we, I learned a lot of lessons along the way. So this was an investment where it went from a one million valuation around that I led to a hundred million, and then eventually didn't work out for a variety of different reasons. And there are loads of lessons learned. But that I think what it did was it sowed the seeds for many more investments that I've made since then. So I then led the first round of investment into a company called Hubble, which is a booking platform for offices, and then into Trussell, which is a digital uh, mortgage advisor. And then that those early investments led to the investment thesis for PyLabs, which is what I'm doing now. Um, and PyLabs stands for Property Innovation Labs. And we're now the most active global investor in prop tech uh, with 60 investments and growing. Uh, in 10 different countries, and now getting to the point where we've been around long enough where some of our earlier investments are starting to exit as well. So it's it's a great, it's been a great journey of building up the platform, building up the team, the brand, the machine, and uh, but also kind of starting to return capital to investors and delivering exits, which is a key part of maturing any investment management branch. Faisal, what's driven the decisions that you've made in your career? For example, a move from e-commerce to real estate. What fuels your ambition and drive? I think in the early days, it was like curiosity and uh, interest. Like I was deeply interested in this intersection between real estate and tech. So I, and I wanted to test it out, albeit um, test it on a smaller scale with some personal capital and some capital from like-minded individuals. So it all starts with a spark of like, this is a really interesting space. Um, and then as you then uh, act on that spark and you start building out, then what you need to do, of course, you realize that you can't do this on your own. You need to build a team. So um, a big part of how I think now is what kind of team do I need around me in order to execute on the overall vision that we have for, for the PyLabs platform? And I'd say as for any CEO, I'm sure you'll attest to this as well. That's one of the most challenging things, like making sure you get the right people around you during the different stages of the overall journey in the different uh, parts of the business, then you, there comes a point where you start to think about scale and how do you build on this when you've got a foundation and a platform, you've got some track record and you've got a reputation. How do you then take it to the next level? Because you know people like you and me who are ambitious don't want to stagnate. They don't want to just build something and stick with it. This is not a lifestyle business. Ultimately, we're trying to grow and scale something here. So then your mind shifts to growth and scale. But it, it all starts with a spark 
and uh, an an interest and curiosity in something that you're deeply interested in. I certainly agree that people with creative inquiring minds need to feed their creativity and feed that inquiring mind. Otherwise, they get, you know, they get stale, they get distracted, they get depressed. In fact, being aware of what is required to maintain your own well-being is a really important part of it. So I ask you, Faisal, how do you manage your well-being? You know, what, what excites you outside of work? What passions and hobbies do you have? And how do you make time to indulge those passions and hobbies? Because you're an incredibly busy person with a lot of responsibility. How do you maintain your own work-life balance? Well, um, how I find balance is I, I really do prioritize like health and wellness. And I think that's really important because when you have a lot on your plate and you're a CEO that's under pressure, high stress level, I make sure that I am either following good good kind of sleeping habits, for example. I do wake up insanely early. Like some of my teammates are surprised by my 4.30 a.m. emails and they probably think like, oh, Faisal's overworked or, or uh, underslept, but that's actually not the case. I actually go to bed really early in order to get up at 4.30. And for me, those are like those magical two, three hours before anyone's awake where I can just get ahead of the game. I also do things like I, I, I work out quite regularly to stay physically fit, which helps me stay mentally fit. I take ice cold showers in the morning, don't take hot showers, you know, that there's all kinds of scientific evidence around the kind of wellness benefits of that. And then I think a lot of that hopefully is starting to flow through into team culture as well. With the help of some of my colleagues, we're making sure that we have a number of wellness workshops that are being offered to our team members and our portfolio companies. We do these monthly breathing workshops. We're going to hopefully introduce meditation and yoga. I do a lot of yoga in my own time as well. So there's a lot of these wellness hacks, you could call it, that I incorporate into my overall lifestyle, which helps me. What does your life outside work entail? Are you married? Do you have kids? I'm married. I've got three kids, an 11-year-old, a um, eight-year-old, and a two-year-old. I've got a pretty active family life on the weekend. So during the work week, you know, I'm like this CEO, venture capitalist that's managing a portfolio and making new investments and managing LPs, etc. But, you know, on the weekends, I'm very much just an ordinary dad who goes out and plays football with his kids on uh, in in the, in the local park. Wow, you really are a busy man. <laughs> I mean, I can sympathize to a degree, but I'm really delighted to hear that because I think it's so important that everyone else out there is is, you know, hears that aspiring and indeed successful entrepreneurs are dealing with all of the same challenges as everyone else. You know, they're dealing with complex family lives, they're dealing with split responsibilities and commitments and doing so with all of the complexities uh, and challenges that that entails, and it's no easier for them right? Everyone has the same problems. So I guess, well done you. And I'm sure that behind your success, there is a particularly supportive and loving family. Yeah. No, it's, it, listen, it's not easy. And of course, you have to make sure that you're um, balancing it correctly. And we always need to be thinking about the rebalancing and the reconfiguring of that, because it could be that, you know, one particular week, it swings one way completely in terms of work, often work, that's what sucks up most of your spare time, but you have to make sure you balance it, it back. Are there any specific people that you'd like to call out who've inspired you or influenced you in your career, who've helped you make the big decisions? or unlocked opportunity at various stages? Yeah, uh, listen, you know, at different points in my life, I've had different kind of role models or people that have, that have helped me kind of unlock opportunities for in my career. So I, of course, I'd, I'd start with my own dad. Like he, I have a father who's like a very hardworking businessman who's self-made, very strong personality. And um, I definitely like say that growing up, 
in that type of environment. There's a lot of kind of precedents being set. And uh, I'd say probably during um, my early career in London, I'd say James Kahn for a lot of commercial acumen and, uh, and uh, mentoring in terms of just commercial thinking. And, you know, when I was at Oxford, I've, I've had some great professors. So I've kept in touch with one of my professors from there, Andrew Baum, quite closely. Uh, you know, you, you may know he's leading academic in real estate, but also a practitioner. And it, we've recently brought him on board at PyLab. So it's been quite rewarding that, you know, 10, 11 years after graduating, managed to bring him on board and complete that, you know, full circle and say, okay, you know, professor, it's time to now work together professionally. So yeah, the, 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 from the academic side, it would be Professor Baum and, you know, I'd say personally, probably my father and then, you know, more professionally in the early part of my career, I'd say James Kahn. But I also, I read a ton as well. So I'm always reading about different CEOs across private equity, venture capital, real estate, tech startups. And I feel like I'm learning so much from the biographies I read and you pick up little bits and pieces of wisdom from all of these books. And I, I'd say that I probably need to get a little bit more diverse with the reading content, but I, I do digest a lot of business biographies and you end up picking up a lot of wisdom there. Right, let's turn our attention now to PyLabs and maybe some of the most recent investments you guys have been making and specifically what excites you about those investments? Listen, we've made over 60 investments over the last five years and there's many of them that we're super excited about and I'm personally super excited about. But just mention a couple right here. One of the first and earliest investments we made at PyLabs is a company called LandTech. Um, you may have heard of them. They're a due diligence platform for real estate developers. When we backed them, it was nothing but two people, a, a land buyer and a data scientist and an idea. And we've seen them. We were, and we were the first investors. Uh, they came in through our accelerator program back in 2015. It's been super rewarding to just see them grow from two guys and an idea to you know, eventually 10 people, then 20, then 50. And now it's about 100 people in London, you know, doing really well on the performance and numbers side. I, I, I see them as one of the best performing prop tech startups in the UK and perhaps perhaps Europe. And uh, I think this will be a big year for them. So excited about Lantech. That's great to hear. And importantly, a UK success story. And a UK success story, a real UK success story. One of our investment philosophies, by the way, is to help companies internationalize. Like we're not, and this goes back to my own background, thinking very globally, like we, we, we want businesses coming out of the UK and Europe to go global. So now with a lot of the diligence we do before we invest and part of the portfolio management we do is helping connect them to some of our relationships globally to help the business grow to a global scale. One of our other earlier investments, Office R&D has done really well. So they're based out, out of Bulgaria. And um, I think what's interesting about this one is we actually never even met them in 2015. They weren't able to travel to London. They're based in Sofia. We weren't able to go to Sofia. But so we we did the due diligence, cradle the grave on Skype back then and uh, and convinced ourselves that we should be investing. We believed in their vision of um, a world where the flexible side and co-working side of offices would grow substantially and they would be the operate, operating platform to power that. And uh, the business has done really well. And I think now post-pandemic, as that trend continues even more so with flexible uh, growing, I think that business is really well positioned to grow. So I'm proud of those guys. They're one of those startups that isn't very high profile, but is just plugging away behind the scenes, building a global clientele with some amazing execution. 
And then more, more recently, we've uh, we've made some pretty exciting uh, investments out of our latest fund. So our latest fund is a 60 million pound, so roughly $75 million fund investing into 50 companies across a five-year investment period. And we launched this fund last year, just a few weeks before the pandemic. Got very fortunate with the timing where we got our first close up and running and and uh, we've been very actively investing actually out of this fund last year when a lot of people were kind of pushing the pause button on investing and really prioritizing their existing investments as opposed to new. We deliberately decided to keep our foot on the accelerator and keep investing. So we made 10 new investments last year during the pandemic and about five follow on investments into existing companies. So it was a super busy year for us. And then this year, we've continued with around seven new investments since the beginning of the year. So it's been it's been a really busy time. And uh, uh, what's different about this vehicle is it's bigger than our prior ones. It's also got more follow-on reserve capital, which means that when we make our first investment, that's hopefully not the only investment we make. As the business grows and scales and needs to raise additional capital, we continue to support them. And we've already made around 17 investments out of this fund. So uh, quite active. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, Faisal, around the investment thesis underpinning these investments. What drives your investment decision-making? Sure. So we're quite like a research-led and thematic investor. So we do a lot of our, our own research. We dive deep into certain sub-themes within real estate and prop tech. So just mentioning some of our themes, uh, future of work is interesting. You know, the workplace is evolving, how we work, where we work, what the workplace looks like, the technologies related to the workplace is all changing and evolving. And we're very actively invested there. And we're we published our own research paper in, on that space as well. So we have Office App based in Netherlands in that space, Office R&D, which I mentioned, based in Bulgaria. Recently, we invested in Bright Spaces based in Romania, which is a 3D showcasing platform for office offices. So we have a number of investments in that space. Construction tech is also interesting. You know, we recognize construction as a global, um, albeit super inefficient sector that's ridden with cost overruns and project delays and low margins. So we've been actively investing in some of the technologies that can help make construction more efficient. So we'll be announcing an investment within that space shortly, but we have made prior investments in that space. Future real estate investment management, which is you know, just looking at the entire value chain of real estate from how deals are sourced to diligence, to asset management, investor reporting, capital raising, et cetera. So we've been making some exciting investments there as well. One of the investments worth mentioning is it's a very early stage investment called Honest AI, um, which is trying to use AI and a Google-like interface to help asset managers make asset management decisions. So, you know, you can search on the technology, you can write a search query like, what would be my return if I repositioned this building from offices to, I don't know, let's say residential or student accommodation. And the AI can actually do a lot of the heavy lifting for you and present you with that whole case. Um, so it, it's, it's still early stage, but big promise there and a strong team. And also in that space, we've invested in Vauban, UK-based business, but French team. They're, they're digitalizing the creation of investment vehicles and SPVs and fund structures. So fund structures are created all over the world for different asset classes, be it private equity or venture or real estate. And these guys have created some really interesting legal tech that automates the legal structuring of these vehicles and helps investment managers get up and running very quickly. So that's an exciting one. They've got a pretty global client base and that's a recent investment we've made. There's lots of different themes that we're excited about. 
you know, but sometimes something that's completely outside of any of our research themes comes about. And that's the kind of bottoms up piece of VC where you want to be looking at the ideas as they come in. And sometimes it may not be something you were strategically looking out to do, but it ends up being a really exciting opportunity. So one of our latest investments is um, related to industrial warehouses, as you know, which is one of the fastest growing segments of real estate and automation related to industrial warehouses. So industrial warehouses in this high paced e-commerce environment where e-commerce is growing more and more so, and we need more warehouses to store the goods that need to be shipped to us. Ultimately, robots are how that uh, the speed of execution is being dealt with. So robotics within warehouses. Um, so we, we've recently made an investment in a startup that is like a software platform for robotics within warehouses. So that one's not yet announced, but should, should be an exciting one that we can, we can, um, we can then um, hopefully make some more investments in that, in that particular vertical off the back of this first one. So that's often how we operate. We'll make an initial investment. We'll learn a lot, a lot about that sector through the DD we do, and then we double down and start doing more within that sub team. Let's turn our attention now to the inevitable subject of COVID and the impact that that's had upon both your business and the businesses of your portfolio companies. How have you guys managed to navigate your way through this very complicated and chaotic time? It's kind of been a multi-dimensional problem for 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 us and the you know other industries as well. So first and foremost, the priority became health and safety of the team. So everyone's worked remotely, and and of course, with remote working comes the challenges of like how do you maintain you know team cohesion and same team spirit and same levels of motivation? I'm sure you face that with your team as well. So I think that's kind of a universal problem, um, which is why I'm quite excited about getting back and getting my team back into offices when the government allows us to do so and when it's safe to do so. The other side of it has been, of course, some of our portfolio companies have been impacted because what happened during COVID was capital markets dried up and a lot of people pushed the pause button. And particularly in the early stages of COVID, there was this unknown, there's this fear factor. So people just stopped investing other than their own existing portfolio companies. So what that did for companies that were looking to raise new rounds, I'm talking about our portfolio companies, rounds were either delayed or they were much smaller than... um, you know, they would have otherwise raised, or they had to go back to their existing investors and ask for money. So what that's done is that it, it created a uh, environment where during 2020, the volume of capital raised decreased. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like I can, I can look at our own portfolio and say our companies didn't raise the big rounds that they had set out to do. But what that's done is it's created a bit of a glut of companies raising capital in 2021. There's a lot of companies raising Series A, Series B, Series C, seed extensions across the spectrum. And some of these rounds would have taken place last year, but it's it's just turned out to be a super busy year for capital raising. There's a backlog. And has the impact of last year also on the investor side created a glut of capital that's now waiting to be deployed? I think so, because the investors didn't deploy as much capital as they would have last year, other than like emergency rescue capital that they probably had to invest in their own portfolio companies last year. I think that there is a lot of appetite to do deals this year. Having said that, because there's so many companies raising and there's this backlog coming to the table, like I, I'd suspect a lot of investors have bandwidth issues. There's only so much you can do within 12 months. It's, it, is, it does create for quite a frenzied fundraise environment. Lots of deals coming to the table and investors ultimately have to prioritize, can't do all of them. 
So how has all this impacted your portfolio companies? There has been companies, you know, if we were to take a look at our portfolio, there were companies that were specifically affected by COVID. So anything related to office-related transactions, as an example, which is directly linked to the business cycle, is going to be directly impacted, right? It's um, highly cyclical businesses were very impacted. Anything related to travel, highly impacted through the the external shock that the economy experienced with COVID. But then if you were more, uh, if you were a collaboration software that allowed people to work together, um, we have many of those, you know, you, 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 you faced a tailwind and you grew, you grew quite nicely during COVID. So it really depends. It's, it's not as simplistic as to say COVID acted as a catalyst or COVID acted as an impediment. I'd say for the large part, companies did well during COVID. And I've been really impressed with the resilience and the grit that um, our startups and the industry overall has shown. But of course, there were some very specific types of startups that were directly impacted. Every business leader has been forced outside of their comfort zone and been obliged to take some super hard business decisions these last 12 to 18 months. What do you think of the positive impacts of COVID? What are the learnings that we will take from this that will enable us to build better businesses in the future? Listen, I think COVID has prepared us and probably a lot of people out there for dealing with um, setbacks and calamities and, and uh, dealing with you know, things not going to plan because everyone had to change their outlook for the year and you probably weren't able to do as much as you had set out to do. I mean, we've, we've remained very active on the investing front, but you know, I'd say that if you were out fundraising, probably quite a difficult environment. And it's hopefully built character and built resilience. And uh, you know, those of us that have come out of it have come out stronger and we're ready to face whatever headwinds face us next. I would maybe highlight that the one thing I've noted that the survivors I've come across have in common is that they've taken really tough decisions really early. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that um, it's certainly built character it's built resilience. Um, there's lots that we weren't able to do during COVID. And a lot of that is the soft side of business of like seeing your partners and seeing your people, your portfolio company founders, or seeing some of your investors and spending time with them and investing in those relationships. And, um, you know, I think being apart and not having those communication links can, can take its toll. So like one of the big things we're doing right now is really focusing on community management and getting people together and and really trying to curate this global community of startups and LPs that we've built, which has been harder to do remotely. Obviously, by virtue of your business, you see all types of entrepreneurs, those that go on to build highly successful companies, those that struggle and those that ultimately fail. I'd love to hear in your words what you believe are the main reasons why prop tech entrepreneurs ultimately do not succeed and you know why so many actually fail to build successful businesses that deliver value to investors yeah no uh, well i'm just thinking about obviously we've had businesses that have done really well um and then others that haven't made it and uh, others that that are kind of somewhere in the middle i'd say that it really just comes down to a couple of different factors i'd say that team is critical so building the right team around the founders being good at hiring and retaining team members, like choosing the right people to start with and coming up with the right structures to retain them. I think that's key. People like 
Johnny from Lantech have done an incredible job at building a solid team around him and keeping a high, highly motivated team. Now it's, it's, it's actually quite important from a venture capitalist point of view, when you're assessing a startup, you know that the startup has going, is going to have to go through multiple rounds of fundraising. So they need to convince you, but they also need to convince you that they will be able to convince somebody for their Series A and their Series B and their Series C. So you need to be evaluating the management team, not only from the perspective of like, how well do they know their sector and what's their execution from an operational perspective been, but how well can they go out and navigate this overall capital market of, you know, raising multiple rounds? Like, Fortunately or unfortunately, that is a key skill set that founder needs to have, and not everyone is uh, of the same level there. So that that's a that's an, an important attribute. And when founders don't have it, they might raise that first round, but then they struggle afterwards. And ultimately, without that additional cash injection, they may not make it. Ultimately, it's t- the the team that you're investing in, their capability to hire and build the team around them, their capability to execute which you can measure by what they've done historically, right? And their capability to fundraise from others. Before we wrap up, Faisal, I just want to talk briefly about a very important topic, which is the state of equality, diversity and inclusion in real estate and actually the role of venture capital in enforcing those values across their portfolio companies. Ultimately, the businesses that you're investing in are the ones disrupting this sector for good. So what do you believe is your role as an investor and what part do you play when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Listen, I think that um, this is an increasingly important topic for both real estate and venture and prop tech, the, the actual portfolio companies themselves. We are you know, on a journey ourselves to improve on that front and try to lead from the front because ultimately portfolio companies are usually quite scrappy and they may not have the right policies in place and they need to hire to grow. So they, they may not be as sophisticated as um, we would be or as a real estate company would be on the DNI front. So I, I do think we have a responsibility to lead from the front and uh, we're trying to do the right things and take the right steps. But I'd say we're, we're, we're still going through that journey ourselves. And I'd say very few firms out there can say, we've got this down. We know exactly what we're doing because I think it's quite an evolving um, type of space. But we know we, we are, for example, um, now starting to use diversity VC to find hires. We are incorporating DNI as part of our due diligence when we're looking at new investments that we're making. Um, we have just started doing office hours for DNI, where we're specifically trying to find startups that come from a underprivileged background. So we're starting to take these steps, but I think we have a long way to go. We haven't seen as many founders pitching from different backgrounds, and we're now starting to put in place the processes to, so that we can see more of them. Well done for being so honest and acknowledging that there's still so much work to be done and also well done for leading by example and taking positive, proactive steps to recalibrate the industry. Good luck on the progress and I look forward to hearing an update in due course. Right, we're going to wrap up with some quick fire questions, Faisal. The first one is what's the one piece of advice that you take with you in your career and pass on to others? Try not to take no for an answer. Like we get rejections around us all the time. And the easy thing to do is just to sit back and accept the the no. But I've had many instances and I've turned no's into yeses in business many times before. So I, I think that's super important. Um, and I think building up resilience is super important because uh, building startups and building any kind of business is all kind of, is 
is a, is a journey that zigzags and there's lots of ups and downs and there's bad news you face all the time, as you know, and somehow building up that strength to keep going is super important. Here, here. Second question. If you were to live your life again, would you choose an alternative career? And if so, what would you do? I absolutely love what I'm doing. I, it's really hard for me to think about. I, I often, you know, when I'm going for a run, I'll think about what would I be doing. I, whenever I've thought about that, I've always come back to, I really love what I'm doing. I actually leave my house in the morning with a skip in my step because I'm so passionate and excited about what I do. Well, that's wonderful to hear how lucky you are. Right. Last but not least, who are the people who you admire and you aspire to in your career who you'd like to invite onto the show to share their stories and their lives and their experiences with our audience? Well, I'm actually, I'm reading Bill Gates's book right now about um, the environment. He sets out a plan on how, how to tackle the environmental crisis in a pretty digestible way. So I do really admire businessmen who have made it and built businesses of scale, had a major impact commercially but also now are dedicating their lives to making the world a better place. I think that's one model that is very interesting. The other model is just to weave the making the world a better place into what you do day to day. And I'd say that's kind of more our model here where we're investing in startups that are commercially really exciting, but are also doing great things and making the world a better place. And that, that, that's become increasingly a part of our whole our overall investment thesis. And on that note, we'll end this podcast. Faisal Butt, founder and CEO of PyLabs, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. It's been my pleasure getting to know you. I wish you and of course, all of your portfolio companies the very best of luck as they gear up for a hugely exciting next chapter of the industry. Most importantly, on behalf of all of the audience here, thank you so much for sharing with us your 2020 vision. Real Estate 2020 Vision was brought to you by Lavanda, the world's leading flexible rental platform. For more information, visit getlavanda.com.
Thanks.